Hello, this is Josh Anderson, CAS, with another episode of In Conversation. The argument could easily be made that Jeff Wexler's name is synonymous with production sound. His career spanned five decades, over 70 films, and included the transition from analog quarter-inch tape to digital file-based recording, which he was an early adopter and pioneer of. He has had many long-time collaborations, including with the directors Hal Ashby and Cameron Crowe, that have extended over multiple films. He is also the creator and moderator of the online forum that bears his initials, JW Sound Group, a worldwide social gathering place and educational resource for people working in cinematic sound. Along with the numerous nominations and awards for such films as Independence Day, 61, The Last Samurai, and Almost Famous, Jeff was awarded the Cinema Audio Society's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011. I'm honored to have spoken to Jeff by phone and to hear more about his storied career. Here is my conversation with Jeff Wexler, CAS. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me. Should I introduce myself? Yeah, that'd be good. Hello to everybody. I'm Jeff Wexler, CAS, um, born in Chicago, Illinois, uh, April 18th, 1947. Lived uh, lived in Chicago uh, fairly early on. My parents uh, were divorced, and um, I lived in a household full of women. My mother, my grandmother, my aunt, and my sister. Got to see my father a lot, you know, but it was all sort of, you know, visiting situation. And uh, for those who may not already know, my father was the celebrated cinematographer, political and social activist, uh, Haskell Wexler, something which... Every time throughout my life, I've said, you know, I'm Jeff Wexler. They said, are you related to Haskell? <laughs> so I learned to to live with that and actually appreciate it and enjoy it. Um, my father was really uh, uh, quite an amazing person. Mm. Uh, so we would have these visits, which I really liked. Uh, and then I think in 1955, um, Pop moved to California to further his career uh, in camera. He had had been working in Chicago uh, doing primarily documentaries. I, I know when I visited early on, he was working for Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, doing documentaries and educational films and stuff like that. But he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to move into the move into the big time in Hollywood. So um, he moved to California, and uh, our visits then became sort of extended stays, usually like in the summer when I was not in school and uh, I would travel to California and uh, spend, you know, a month or more uh, with Pop, which was really, really fun. And I mean, California was so, so different than Chicago. I mean, it was just like night and day, you know, it was like traveling to a different planet almost. And I really, I really liked it. And I liked being with my father. Um, at some point along the way, um, I guess it was like in 1960, my mother suggested that, um, you know, would I like to go live with my father? You know, on a trial basis, she wasn't kicking me out of the house by any means, but uh, she knew that I really loved going to California. And she thought, you know, I guess underneath it all, she thought it would be a good idea that I spend some, spend more time with my father. So uh, I jumped at the opportunity. And on my way to California, uh, I stopped in St. Louis, where my father was working on a movie, The Hoodlum Priest. Got a taste of uh, location life, stayed at the uh, Chase Park Plaza Hotel for uh, close to a month, actually. Um, you know, got to sit out by the pool and order room service. And, uh, you know, some assistant would come and take me to the set and I could watch them watch them film and, and all. And it was really uh, pretty exciting. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, when that when that was over and I had to get out to uh, Los Angeles, uh, you know, to start school, I went to um, uh, to live in uh, Pop's house in uh, up in the Hollywood Hills. Went to LeConte Junior High School and then on to um, Hollywood High. D- 
did really, I was really enjoying the, um, the, the California life. I was enjoying being with Pop and he was really into cars and I really got into car racing and, and uh, he owned a couple of, a uh, couple of race cars and, uh, you know, and I would climb around on the Hollywood Hills and had a bunch of friends and it was just, you know, it was, it was terrific and uh, did very poorly in high school because I was really into the cars and, you know, I think I probably took auto shop, you know, three or four times and so I could work on my cars and, you know, barely, barely got out of high school, did graduate from the Hollywood Bowl, a class of 750 students and uh, had no intention of going to college, but because um, there wasn't really any college that would let me in anyway with my grades being, you know, at a low, a low C. But, you know, Vietnam was raging and uh, I knew, you know, I didn't want to go to Canada. I didn't want to shoot my foot off. So I figured I better get in school and get a student deferment. So I went to Valley Junior College, where all you had to have was a high school diploma and $6.50, and I was in. And I really loved it. It was just, that's when I started taking classes that really, you know, were meaningful and interesting. I think I had a sociology class early on that I realized that this is a disciplined way of making sense of the world, you know, and of people. And so I did very well. And, uh, very quickly um, enrolled in um, San Francisco State College because I wanted to go to a, a regular full-on college. Moved up to San Francisco, perfect time in history, 65 to 71 or so. I was in San Francisco, great music, you know, Haight-Ashbury, the whole deal. And uh, I um, pretty much settled into studying sociology and preparing to be a, a teacher. I was going to teach sociology at the college level. And uh, at one point, Pop asked me if, uh, uh, you know, if I was going to be in school for the rest of my life. And I said, well, you know, if I become a teacher, hopefully uh, that'll be the case. And I think he was sort of tired of paying for my education or, you know, wanted to get me like a real job or something. Uh, so, of course, the job that he was going to get me was going to be on a, um, on a movie. And I had already done some little odd jobs for, for Pop's commercial company when they'd come up to San Francisco. I would help out, you know, pretty much just as a, like a production assistant. And um, I had also, on a couple of breaks, I had worked doing some screen tests for uh, a movie that Pop was going to shoot with Hal Ashby. And I showed up with Pop just to sort of help out, you know, carrying cases and dealing with stuff like that. And, but Hal wanted to do the screen tests in his home. Unlike most screen tests, which were done in a studio with a regular film crew, um, Hal wanted to videotape this. And this was in the early days of videotape. I mean, we didn't have camcorders and certainly mm -hmm. nobody had iPhones or anything else like that. So, but he did have a brand new Sony reel-to-reel -reel videotape recorder. It was a two-piece deal, uh, you know, with a recording deck and an outboard camera on a cable uh, with a built-in microphone. And they were having trouble getting it working. And I saw my father and Hal um, sort of going through this manual, which was all in Japanese. And uh, so, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, let me have a go at it. And I, and I got the whole thing working. They were very happy and they could go ahead and shoot the, uh, shoot the screen test. So I had done those sorts of things. But then when Pop suggested that I later that I uh, get on a job, uh, the job that he got me was working on the movie Harold and Maude, which was a picture that Hal Ashby directed. Because uh, you know, my father first met Hal um, when he was working as an editor for uh, Norman Jewison. And Pop shot mm. a couple of pictures for uh, for Norman. But um, Pop was going to shoot it, but because of a conflict, he couldn't actually shoot the movie. And he uh, recommended John Alonzo to shoot it. It was only John's second movie, but he liked John and thought it would be a good chance for him to uh, 
hook up with Hal and, and do the movie. So uh, I accepted the job. The job I was given was production assistant uh, assigned to the art department. Um, I mean, actually working as a production assistant was the only job I could do since, you know, it was a, a union movie. So you're not allowed to do any job you want. So, but production assistants are not covered by the union. So I was hired as a production assistant and worked primarily with the uh, art director, uh, Michael Haller, and um, the uh, prop master, Steve Ferry. So um, I learned about how to do a script breakdown for props, uh, what's going to be needed. And, and I spent most of my time actually getting props, you know, because I knew the city. I knew San Francisco and Northern California better than most of the people that were on the crew. So I would be out picking up stuff for the next day's shoot. And and um, and I was the one that had to come up with, you know, a shrunken head for uh, for Maud to uh, to carry around um, because I knew where the voodoo shop was in San Francisco. And and I would say probably a week into the movie, I would uh, I would go to dailies every day. And for those who may not know, dailies is where you see the footage that you've shot the, the previous day. And it was the first time that I was you know, on a movie set, but not as a visitor, as a, you know, as a real participant and a real contributor. I saw my work up there on the screen, the big bow that ties up the E-type Jaguar that his mother gives him, you know, was uh, something that I had to find. I had to go to a ribbon factory and have them specially make a ribbon that was like a foot wide, because normally they make the ribbons very, very wide, and then they cut them into, you know, the, the usual width, you know, so I saw it and that's great. You know, it's exactly what should be there. And so mm -hmm. I went to um, the dailies uh, every day on Harold and Maude. And Hal, I learned very quickly, Hal did not like silent dailies, MOS dailies. So typically in other movies, editorial department would pick some music, would have it transferred to mag and would build it into the dailies so that Hal didn't, you know, when, when they got to the end of the, uh, the sound screenings, Hal would mm -hmm. screen all of the, the MOS dailies, but with, with some music playing. But editorial was being done in L.A. We were shooting in Northern California, and they were overloaded with getting the film back up to Northern California, and they couldn't do it. And so Hal asked me, he said, he said, um, he said I'd like to play some music in the dailies room. Uh, Hal already knew that uh, both of us were lovers of Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens had not been chosen to do the movie uh, sound for this yet. Um, I brought in a little record player I had, a portable record player. It was one of those singer record players, you know, like in a little suitcase, brought mm -hmm. in my Cat Stevens records. And when the, the MOS scenes would come up, for example, like uh, Bud Court driving the, uh, in the rain, I'd set the needle down on Trouble, you know, off mm -hmm. the Cat Stevens album. So basically I was scoring the dailies. And Hal absolutely fell in love with the use of Cat Stevens music in the movie, which obviously anyone that's seen the movie knows that it's such an integral part. Right. It's also one of the first movies that used, um, did not have a score. It had just mm -hmm. the, the Cat Stevens music. And later he actually got Cat Stevens to write two original songs for the movie. And we did a playback scene to one of those songs, and um, which is the first time that I actually got to do some real sound work. Other than playing my records at dailies, um, I um, helped doing the playback uh, where uh, Maud's theoretically playing her piano, although it's a player piano. She gets up from the piano and it continues to play. So uh, I was really pleased. And I think literally maybe a week or two into the, into the movie, I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to work on movies. So 
finished up the movie, um, again, contributing a lot of stuff. So I was really, you know, I was really a, a movie worker. And uh, when the film finished up, I knew that I wanted to work on movies, but I wanted to do something more technical. I've been a gadget freak sort of all my life. So it was either going to be camera or sound. And I knew right away it was not going to be camera. Um, I'm not a very competitive sort of person. I didn't look forward to the idea that I would be compared to my father, who was a truly great cinematographer. So I said, well, I'll, I'll do sound. And um, having never done it before, but having been around movie sets and all that, uh, I was pretty familiar with what it should look like I should know to do in the sound department. And uh, very quickly, I did get a job. I was interviewed by Gene Corman, Roger Corman's brother, um, who was doing a movie. And uh, I was offered the job as a sound mixer. Never asked whether I had ever even done it before or what was my previous job or anything. I think just on the strength of the fact that my last name was Wexler, Gene Corman was happy that uh, uh, he could get a warm body that would work for uh, $450 a week, unlimited hours, with equipment. That's what the, that's what the going rate was um, in 1970. The movie was Cool Breeze, which um, there was a bunch of what they were generally referred to as black exploitation movies mm -hmm. going on. You know, Shaft was one of them. I think I don't right. know whether we were before or after Shaft. So I got on the movie, and my good friend Andy Davis, who was a cameraman at that time, later went on to become a director, did Under Siege and The Fugitive and a number of big movies. But he was a cameraman at that time. It was his first movie as a DP, my first movie as a production sound mixer. And uh, I knew I had to have a boom operator. It was going to be a two-person crew, which was standard. And I knew what the boom operator was supposed to do, and I knew that I had to have one. And it suggested I hire uh, his good friend, Tom Holman from Chicago, who I found out later was never a boom operator, but he was a school teacher. He taught film at the University of Illinois in Champaign. And uh, I figured, well, this is great. I'm going to hire a boom operator who's actually a teacher, and he may actually be able to teach me how to be a sound mixer. Um, <laughs> so he came out. He came out to California with his. Actually, he borrowed the Nagra from the school inventory. Uh, I think I borrowed uh, some microphones and um, various other things from people that I knew and all that. And uh, we started the job. I really didn't know what I was doing, but it turned out that I had an innate sense of what was right to do on a movie because I'd been around it since the age of two and everything just sort of made sense. There wasn't that shock that like people that come out of film school, even after they've had four years of film school and their first day on the set, they're going, oh, what is going on here? You know, everything feels strange and, and abnormal and difficult. Everything was very easy. And uh, I just sort of understood it all, but I still had to learn the equipment. I had to learn, you know, so we would spend most of the time when we weren't shooting, you know, or in, even in between takes, I would ask Tom, well, what does this switch do? You know, the high pass, low frequency switch on the Nagra. And he would explain to me all about equalization um, and the difference between high pass and low, low frequency attenuation and the reason to use one or the other. And, uh, uh, all, you know, he would give me the whole academic you know, and then they would say roll sound. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I knew how to roll a recorder and we do a take. And then after that take was over, I'd go on to the next thing. Well, what does this switch do? So we got through the job. But I remember one day, um, and I've told this story, actually, when uh, Tom Holman got the uh, Career Achievement Award at the CAS, I remember telling the story at the uh, award show. We were doing a scene in the police station um, 
with five people in the scene. Tom was up like an eight-step ladder with a very directional microphone, an AKG CK9, trying to get his cues during a rehearsal, you know, amongst all the people. And I knew we were just about on the last rehearsal. I was getting ready to roll the machine and and mix the scene. And and uh, Tom comes down off the uh, off the ladder, comes over to the sound cart, and he says, Jeff, he says, I'm a little concerned. He says, operating the microphone, he says, you know, the AKG uses an interference tube to uh, achieve its directionality. And I'm operating so close to the ceiling on this wide shot that we're getting lateral reflections and it's affecting the polar pattern of the microphone. And so I'm thinking that we should, and I said, Tom, I said, they're gonna roll the camera. I said, you gotta climb up that ladder and point the mic at the people who talk. You know, so it was the meeting of, you know, the academic world that Tom knew so well and the, and the rigors of production where, you know, you better get up there and point the mic at the people who talk. You know, we'll talk about the characteristics of the microphone later, you know, maybe at lunch. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so Tom got up the ladder and, and, and he did a reasonably good job. Never turned out to be a fairly, very good boom operator, but he was a terrific teacher. And after that, I went on and did another job for another another uh, director, producer, and and uh, that got the whole uh, the whole ball rolling. I'm, I'm curious also just about like, you know, just to not get too far away from your, your growing up, but like, oh, I'd sort love of to go back to it. <laughs> what <laughs> that sort of meld of, uh, or where do things kind of come together between what was your interest in sociology and uh, I guess your father's interest in uh, social commentary and like with medium cool and, and sort of then what, and what you were maybe watching and your interests growing up and kind of where that, did that, did that position you in a direction for well, films that you started working on? In or? a way, because as I was saying, I, I really grew up, you know, for most of my young childhood um, in, uh, in my mother's, you know, family. And uh, she was a real movie buff also, but really uh, musicals and mm. uh, mystery movies. So, you know, at one point I wanted to be Fred Astaire. You know, I wanted to learn how to dance, you know. And um, we also did a lot of live theater. I was so lucky to go and see so many things live, you know, real, real musical productions, uh, mm -hmm. whether it was Guys and Dolls or My Fair Lady or things like that. And then later to see the movies. So I got an appreciation of the movie version of things that I had seen live, but but was not really very much into socially relevant or political movies um, because of uh, it wasn't specifically my mother's interest. And I never really even saw any of the documentary stuff that my father had been working on. But I would, I was very aware of his social and political activism, um, the times that we would, we'd be visiting. And certainly when I moved to California, there were times that um, I knew, you know, I was sat in on meetings that he had with, uh, uh, you know, like Harry Belafonte, you know, where they were planning um, you know, events that were ostensibly entertainment related, but were also socially and politically relevant, you know, whether they were doing a concert or an event or something. And um, so I was, I was well aware of his particular political bent, which was pretty radical, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I was also aware of his own persona in that um, uh, he used to be, he used to have to be very quiet on the set uh, and not discuss any of these things because basically mm. Hollywood was not very progressive, uh, and most of the people on the crew were, you know, pretty right wing, you know, not his kind of people. And um, I know he was the first 
person to wear like a blue jean jacket, you know, to to work when everybody else was wearing suit and tie. And uh, he was wearing, you know, blue jean jacket and sneakers because that's what he was comfortable in. And so he was kind of a kind of an outlaw in a way. Mm. And um, that was sort of obvious to me. And I, I kind of enjoyed it. And also by visiting the set, I, as I was saying, I did learn a lot about um, the the responsibility of filmmakers that you're not just you're not just doing whatever your craft is. You're you're contributing and participating in something which will have a life that is larger than just your efforts. And you need to be concerned about the the subject matter and the content and how an audience is going to view this and whether it could actually help in people understanding the world and understanding people. And you know, my father made the statement one time that he really he loved having a view of the world through the camera. Mm. Um uh whereas I at that point, loved having a view of the world through my studies in sociology, knowing how how to observe even a relate you know a relationship with a group of people and and to, to understand that dynamic um, from an academic standpoint. So they actually were quite quite related. Um, yeah, and it, and it I, would made, think, I would think that interest in in your in how sort of how people are relating probably was very beneficial when you first got out of sets. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and that's and that carried over to when I became a regular full-on crew member, uh, you know, even though I was the sound department, um I really approached it differently than a lot of sound mixers because I approached it more like a filmmaker and I think that just comes from uh from all the years of being around my father who again even though he was hired as the camera cameraman, and I'll say man because at that point most of them were men, uh, were expected to like shoot the movie and don't be too concerned about what what the movie is about or whether a performance is good or bad or whether what I'm shooting is actually furthering the story. You know, I mean it's it's very easy for cinematographers to slip into that. Well, I have a bunch of very very beautiful images and a sound mixer to say yeah, I've got a lot of really really nice sounds, but forgetting about the fact that you're only contributing to something where you're trying to affect an audience in a certain way and serve serve the director's purposes and serve the story. So even though I'm recording dialogue uh, as a production sound mixer primarily, I was always very sensitive to believing that I'd actually captured a performance when an actor has really, really, as Tom Cruise used to say, you know, was really bringing it, bringing it to the set. And I felt a, a high responsibility to um, to capture that performance and not have it be encumbered by technique or by my desire to get pristine sound that may end up being actually not terribly appropriate to what the camera is seeing. Um, this brings me to the approach of perspective sound, which was something which I fell in love with right away, but that's primarily the way it was always done. Because, you know, when I started out, almost everything was one camera. You would craft each shot, the images and the sound, knowing that that was going to have to go with another shot that you're going to do later, that may be a little closer shot than the wide shot, and how all these things will be cut together later in post-production. You're not making the whole movie on the day. You're gathering all the pieces. Perspective sound almost came automatically if the shot was a little wider. The microphone, the boom microphone was, of course, somewhat further away. You'd move into a closer shot. The microphone could move in. 
and it shared the same point of view as the image up to a point. I mean, there were times when a wide shot was so wide that, you know, the microphone would be too far away to record anything was, that was usable. But I was always conscious of the fact that when you moved in for the closer shot, you don't want to necessarily move the microphone in as close as you could be, you know, like right on the frame line, because you're coming out of a more generous wider shot. And it would be disconcerting for an audience to all of a sudden have that voice be so much closer because the camera didn't really move that much closer. So that's what your auditory memory had to deal with. And that was something that production sound mixers had to learn. And the people that were successful uh, would always be complimented in editorial when things were putting things together. Because, I mean, the greatest compliment for me would be when an editor could go in and put together just the raw dailies, the sound really could just play as it is, you know, my choices during shooting. That's the part of the craft that I really, um, really fine-tuned. And I think that's what, you know, the directors that I worked for, and I did end up getting a lot of um, repeat business uh, from, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily do as many jobs as I could have done, um, but I would had several, several directors and producers uh, who um, uh, really wanted, wanted me back, not just because they knew they would have, you know, good sound where there wasn't a lot of looping and, and all, just that I was really lending something to the movie that um, uh, is often overlooked. I I do want to touch base on your getting into the IA and how sure. that all worked out for you because I I know it's an interesting story. You got a couple of years you're working non-union first, but yeah, I did I did five or six movies uh, non-union. I think you know Roger Corman type movies mm -hmm. and not not I mean I I, I love the fact that I was working, but I knew that that I really wanted to be able to work on really good movies, and I'd also had um, the chance to work in a way. Again, um, beginning with Hal Ashby doing these screen tests and doing stuff with my father that was not covered by the union. I could do it because, you know, they had nothing nothing to do with it. And I actually did um, pre-production work on Last Detail, which Hal tried to get me on that, but I, you know, wasn't even close to being able to get in the union. And also on Shampoo, again, could not get in the union, but did some pre-production work for him. Finally, uh, it took actually two class action lawsuits. The first class action lawsuit gave me the right to join the union, which, uh, and I was in this lawsuit with some fairly notable people, uh, Andy Davis, again, who uh, wanted to get in the union, Tak Fujimoto, who went on to become a DP for um, Jonathan Demi and a number of other people. And uh, there was a production designer, I think John Retzik, um, just a bunch of people who went on to have really full careers. But you know, would not have been able to go anywhere had they not been able to get in the union. So we all got in the union. And around that time, about a month later or so, I was doing uh, casting sessions again for a movie that Hal was going to direct and Pop was going to shoot. So I was working on screen tests for that. Uh, the movie was Bound for Glory. And so I continued doing pre-production work and all, but we're getting closer and closer to the film going. And I was getting a little scared, but I, you know, got up the nerve to ask Hal. I said, you know, well, who's going to uh, who's going to mix this? Because I figured, you know, Hal had tried so many times to get me on the movies that I figured he would give up at some point. And he said, well, you're you're going to mix it. And I said, well, yeah, but we have, you know, the union problem. And well, he says, he said, you're in the union now, though, right? And I said, yeah, well, I just I just got in. And he says, well, he says, fine, you're doing the movie. So I went, oh, great. 
then I like got scared, you know, because this is a really big movie. And um, I'd obviously read the script, you know, there was going to be 27 musical numbers and, um, you know, we were working on trains and we were doing, you know, and uh, plus my father was shooting it. And, you know, I was actually green enough that um, I couldn't really be too scared because I didn't even know how to be scared. But uh, I did prepare for the movie and got all my equipment together and got on the uh, got on the truck and went up to Stockton where we're going to start shooting. And literally a week before I was doing, um, you know, some location scouting and stuff like that, the word came down that um, I couldn't do the movie. The union was saying, um, well, it's true that Jeff is a member, but he's in group three seniority, having just just got in, and he's not allowed to do the picture. Um, he said, uh, you know, you really... We cannot hire a group three until all the ones and twos are employed, a situation which has never happened in the 60-year uh, history of our local. So he's going to have to sit this one out. So here I am up in Stockton. Everyone thinks I'm doing the movie. Hal thinks I'm doing the movie. The word got to Hal that the union says you can't do the movie. The producers were scrambling to hire somebody else. You know, Hal locked himself in his hotel room and said, I'm not coming out here until Jeff is on the movie. Two hours later, I'm on the movie. But I was on the movie. They hired a standby, a standby sound mixer, who got full pay for the full run of the movie, didn't do the job, and uh, I was allowed to mix, you know, which was just the most fantastic thing in the world, because otherwise, you know, I would have been dead in the water. And, um, and the movie was extremely challenging, but I did a pretty goddamn good job on it. And the weird thing is before, as soon as I knew that I was going to be doing it, I asked Hal, I said, well, who's going to be doing playback? Because I assumed that all the musical numbers, we were going to do playback, which is I'd had some experience doing playback. And he said, no, we're going to do it all live. He just thinks that it would never work doing it to playback. I don't want to pre-record all this stuff. I want the spontaneity. And we have scenes where we have dialogue. And then we have, you know, and it's just a guy and his guitar, he says, you know, so and again, I was green enough to not really worry about this, but it was a tremendous challenge to uh, record. We did 27 musical numbers, all of them live, and they didn't all end up in the movie. But everything that you hear, um, you know, there was no looping in the movie at all. Everything are, uh, is all the live music, including the studio stuff we had to do. And the only problem that I had was that David Carradine turned out to not be a very good musician, so that... Every time we would do stuff, he would, you know, his guitar would be played, you know, out of tune. We'd have to spend a lot of time, you know, because between cuts, obviously, we needed to have everything in tune because we weren't doing it to a playback track. But fortunately, because Hal had been an editor for so many years, he really knew how to shoot live music so that we wouldn't get in trouble editorially. Uh, so that whenever we were doing dialogue, it would never be married to, to, to the music. He would make sure that we could exclude stuff. So he really walked me through a lot of stuff and kept me out of trouble. But he was a masterful editor. I mean, he got Academy Awards for editing. And mm. um, that reminds me of, uh, I mean, the famous Steadicam shot in Bound for Glory, where, I mean, really... If you're going to go with the, the only the dialogue is important, it's the last, what, 30 seconds of this shot. But there's so much going on before you get there. Yes. Can I tell you? Can I tell you the Bound for Glory yeah, shot? Yeah, please tell me. Because <laughs> yes. I, I had the pleasure of being the first production sound mixer to work with the Steadicam because uh, that was the first time the Steadicam had been used. My father had, had uh, worked with Garrett on a commercial, I think for Ked's Shoes, and was very friendly with, uh, with Garrett, who's a fantastic individual anyway. 
and uh, was really absolutely when Bound for Glory came up, he knew he wanted to use it on the movie. So he lined up, lined up Garrett and uh, Garrett came and uh, they were figuring out what the shot would be. And, and, all, and Garrett went up into the camera truck, which was just a single, single truck with some aluminum stairs going up to the truck. And then he came to the doorway of the, uh, we were all standing around outside uh, of the camera truck. And then the camera floating in front of him, he just danced down the stairs of the, uh, of the camera truck and came over to us, did a big roundy roundy. You know, he was just sort of showing us and literally people's jaws dropped and they went, this is going to produce amazing footage. And Garrett was obviously the only person who had operated a steady cam. So he was the master by default. I mean, you know, nobody else had done it. The camera, on the other hand, was a highly modified Airy 2C that was incredibly noisy, even noisier than a normal, normal Airy. So I'm already thinking, how are we going to do sound for this? Mm. Uh, I really don't want to have to loop the scene. So the grips got together a canvas bag for me. And you have to remember, this is before nobody on feature films was doing like what we call bag work now, you know, or, you know, we would do some over the shoulder stuff with the Nagra and stuff like that. But this scene, I knew that what I was going to have to do is I was going to have to have two mics, wireless mics on Quaid and on uh, and, and David Carradine for the dialogue. But I also needed an open mic to get some ambience, to get some crowd noise, to get the truck pulling up and all those things that... You know, as a production sound mixer, I mean, a lot of people say, well, I'm doing dialogue and that's it. But a lot of us think we're here. We've got the recording capability. We've got the microphones. We should record anything and everything that could be useful for people in post. You know, sure, they can get all that later sound effects and, you know, and whatever. Or we could get it wild. But I wanted to get it while we're shooting, you know. So it was going to be this big bag with the Nagra Vega wireless receivers strapped to it. And you have to remember the Vega wireless receivers at that time were about the size of uh, a small shoebox. In other words, they were really big. So that was strapped on top of the Nagra, which was strapped on top of the Sela mixer. All of this was in a bag, weighed a fucking ton. And I had an open, uh, I think it was probably an 815. And uh, that was coming into the Sela mixer. So I had control over the two mics, which I didn't need the wireless until we got up to, uh, up to that part of the scene. And, you know, we got the slate. Camera comes down off there, and I'm miking anything that makes interesting sounds, like the background, people dealing with the tents, you know, and all this. And when the truck pulls up, you know, there's people in the truck, and there's the guy calling out, we need pickers for the day. And, you know, I'm getting all that stuff like that as the steady cam's moving, and I'm just barely avoiding the incredibly loud sound of the camera until we get up to the dialogue. And I dumped my ambient mic. You have to remember, I'm mixing to one track again. Mm -hmm. Dumped the ambient mic and went just with the mic on them. And they were far enough away that in the final movie, they could fill in with enough crowd sounds that I'd gotten and all that, that um, the dialogue carried and they didn't have to loop the scene. It um, was one of the other things that helped put me on the map as a production sound mixer that can do amazing things. When the amazing thing was just the fact that we were doing a steady cam shot, which ended up feeling like, you know, a helicopter shot, except on the ground with no wind. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, you know, it was just thrilling.
bastards. Goddamn bastards. That's all they've taken, them 30 people? That's it. That's all they ever took. Well, hell, why do you stay here? Listen, why don't you go to one of them other camps? Maybe they're hiring more there. Don't make no difference. I mean, they all work the same. It's the fourth one we've been to, and it's all alike. The uh, when the film got into um, re-recording into post, the uh, chief re-recording mixer Buzz Knutson at Todd AO, uh was just amazed at uh, everything, including doing the um, "This Land Is Your Land" uh, on top of a moving train car. And they didn't know how I did it, and you know they just thought it was amazing. And Buzz, Buzz said, he says, "Well, where have you been all these years?" And I said, "Well, I've been trying to get in the goddamn union." Um, <laughs> you know, so um, I ended up really having a friend in post production, and and that's what started my whole relationship with trying to keep that division between production and post at a minimum. And I was fortunate enough to always be involved in post production um, after the fact mostly because I didn't work that much that I could do a movie. And, you know, in, in today's world, people are working so much that they never get a chance to even sit in on a mix. And so many of the people in post-production don't really know what goes on in production at all. And vice versa, people in production used to fall back on that. Well, I'm sure they can fix it in the mix, but they don't really know what that means. And I did have um, a golden opportunity um, when I did being there. Um, mm -hmm. when, we, uh, when we finished the movie, um, Everything was cut together, and you know, I went to visit uh, the um, re-recording, you know, the dubbing mixer um, at Goldwyn, um, who was the chief chief re-recording mixer at Goldwyn. And Hal took me aside and said, he said, he said, I'm not, I'm not happy with what he's doing on the movie. You know, he says, uh, he says, I, I want you to mix this in, in post production. Well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a re-recording mixer. You know, I'm, I never sat down in front of a, you know, a giant. Con and I said, and you can't fire the chief re-recording mixer at Goldwyn. Uh, and he says, well, he said, I, I don't want to fire him, but, you know, and it turns out that that what was going on is that this particular mixer was assigned to like four other movies and he was really like burnt out, overworked, mm. and he wasn't, you know, giving it his best shot. He's a really good re-recording mixer and he's done other films with Hal. So turns out that he was actually really relieved that I was, you know, willing to like take over and you know, try and mix a couple of reels. And so he could have, you know, a little bit of a break. So I think I started working on like reel three and Hal said, I'll, I'll show you how to do it. He says, it's not that big a deal. He says, you know, it's not that complicated to mix. And so Hal runs, runs through the whole console to me, you know, cause he knew what was going on as a, as a director and previously an editor, he'd been in on a lot mm -hmm. of mixes. So I got to mix um, some stuff and, you know, reel two and three and four and, and really got my firsthand understanding of what you can do in the mix afterwards and what you can't do i found out a lot about cleaning up tracks and discovered mm -hmm. the the dolby cat 42 which is this item to pull out certain sounds that you don't want and clean stuff up and then i saw the end reel and as the credits would roll you know i would look at the credits and the music and you know mix all that stuff and uh i didn't see my credit i saw the excellent credit that he had given don sufal my boom operator which was don sufal boom operator and so much more and uh, which I thought was terrific. But at some point I, I asked Hal, I said, I said, I, I don't see any credit. You know, did we just forget to put me on the movie? And he says, we haven't done the credits for real one yet. You're getting a single card credit in the front of the movie. And at that time, no other sound mixer 
production sound mixer had ever had a single card credit. So right up there in the front of the movie, right after, may even have been after my father's credit, I'm not sure, I got a single card credit, which I thought was just just outstanding. Um, wow. That really validated my contribution, and it also expressed how Hal felt about having me on the movies. That's great. I would like to talk about your longest uh, working relationship, which was with uh, with Don Sufol. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear. I mean, you guys go well, back over 60 movies. Yes. Um, yeah, we did 60, 67 movies over 37 years. Wow. And uh, during the period of time, once we started working together, I only did three, three movies without him. There were times when I couldn't get a job and Don would take off and work with somebody else because he was very much in demand as soon as I wasn't you know, available uh, or doing a movie, he would, uh, you know, somebody else got lucky and would get Don. But I uh, I hooked up with Don first on uh, on some commercials and on an industrial movie. Uh, prior to that, I had worked with, you know, once I got in the union, I could work with some professional boom operators. In the non-union days, um, boom operator, you were really just lucky to get somebody that was willing to do the job and um, never had really any great results with uh with the people in the non-union days. But once I got in the union, I got to hire, um, uh, notably, Pat Sarasi, who was uh, Chris Newman's boom operator for many, many movies, you know, the Godfather movies and various other things, you know, had a 20-year career in New York, moved out to um, California. And I knew him through Chris Newman, because my father had had a relationship with Chris, because Chris did Medium Cool, which was Chris's first movie as a uh, production sound mixer on a feature film. And Chris was hired because of his documentary background and my father hired, you know, another story. So I had passed right. But when, when I started working with Don, um, we did a uh, training film for the uh, Los Angeles County justice system. It was a training film for people, prospective jurors that were shown to jurors, what it'll be like to be in the juror room. And we did a whole conference room thing just with a fishpole and one microphone. And, um, you know, Don did a terrific job and I really liked, liked the guy and liked working with him. And then uh, a movie came up, Foul Play, which again was um, first movie that Colin Higgins got to direct. Colin Higgins was the writer on Harold and Maud, And I got along with Colin really, really well on, on Harold and Maud, and hadn't really followed Colin's career. And Colin hadn't followed my career, didn't even know that I'd become a sound mixer. But Colin called Hal Ashby and said, you know, I want to hire a sound mixer for my first directorial effort. Who should I hire? Because you knew Hal had done a bunch of movies. And mm -hmm. Hal said, well, remember Jeff Wexler, uh, you know, production assistant, you know, he's a, he's a sound mixer now, and a really good sound mixer. You should hire him. So Colin hired me, got the job on Foul Play, and I hired Don Sufal. And uh, we uh, went up to San Francisco, started shooting. So we've been shooting, shooting for uh, a couple of weeks. And we got ready to do what I knew was the opening scene in the movie. It was a scene where someone comes to um, a doorway, opens the door, and has a brief conversation. It's important dialogue, but it was going to be shot from up inside, up, up a flight of stairs, looking down. It's a pretty wide shot. Don was out there with a fishpole going around during the rehearsal. Everything sounded pretty good. So I kind of sat back and I figured, well, when they're ready to roll, you know, I'll mix it. It was one microphone, not a big deal. But right before they're getting ready to roll, Don comes over to the sound card and he says, uh, says, I think we should wire him. I think we should wire him up. And I'm going, oh. And you have to remember, this is in the days when you wired people only if you really had to. And you would always worry that they weren't going to work. And even if they did work, they weren't going to sound very good. So um, 
I just jumped in my chair like, wire them. And I said, why? I said, you know, I listened to the, uh, uh, I listened to the rehearsal and it sounded pretty good. He said, this is the first scene of the movie. He says, I'm not sure the audience is ready for the sound that we're doing. He says, you know, generally what you and I like is really open sound where you hear the room, you know, perspective sound. He says, this is just a little too wide and a little too jarring to be the first sound that an audience hears. Hmm. He says, so I think we have to tighten it up with mics on them. And you have to remember, this is prior to multi-track. So we had to commit to one thing or the other. You know, I couldn't just say, well, fine, put the mics on them, put them on their ISO tracks. We had to make the decision on the day. And I went with Don's decision. We put the mics on them and they worked well enough and they sounded good enough. But what I was struck by, and I realized years later, this is the boom operator talking about a scene the way I would talk about a scene is, how is an audience going to feel about the mm. scene? How is this going to further the story? not just whether we're recording good sound or not. And that really bonded me. I told this, I told the story to Don years later. He said, well, of course, he says, uh, he says, that's, that's what I have to think about. He says, you know, it's not just whether I can get the mic in there or not. It's, you know, what are we doing here? You know? Um, and uh, that began our, our long relationship. And I just never wanted to do a movie without him because he was an absolute, I mean, besides being technically a fantastic boom operator, he was just a filmmaker's boom operator to the point that when, when I would get a job, I mean, every recommendation soon after that, um, they would say, yeah, well, get, get Jeff and Don. Like it was one entity. Right. And to a certain extent, it was one entity because I wasn't going to do the movie if I didn't have Don mm. because um, there's really nothing I can do back at the sound cart, you know, at the mixing panel and all that. If, Things aren't being done properly on the set because, again, this is back in the days when, you know, 80 or 90 percent of a movie was uh, boomed. Um, mm. In today's world, where almost everything is mics on the actors, production sound mixer has to be a different kind of mixer. You know, you have to be like a track layer, more like uh, rock and roll, more like uh, music mixing and a whole lot less like what most of my career was. And I probably wouldn't be very good at it. So even up until retirement, we still kept working the same way we always did, which was avoiding the use of wireless mics, not because so much because they were wireless, but because the mic was on the actor, a place where it really shouldn't be, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. How would, you, how would you describe working with Don? It was, it was just, it was so natural because we were thinking about the same things. In other words, Don had to think about a whole lot of things that I didn't have to think about which is like what his body is doing, where he's mm -hmm. on the set, worrying about shadows, worrying about frame lines, worrying about, you know, operating the microphone also. But at the same time, he's really listening to what, what he's doing and discovers that there may be an actor with a particularly shrill voice that if he puts them not directly on mic, but sides them out a little bit, they're going to sound more like they actually sound to their ear in real life so when he's booming, it's not just pointed at the person who's talking. It's put the microphone where we're getting the sound that we both want. And I'm sitting back in heaven, just listening to this stuff and going, I don't know how it's happening, but I'm happy. And, you know, and after the tape, if I've had to do a couple of crossfades between a second boom or a plant and Don, and maybe I don't do it perfectly, you know, Don would always get on the microphone and say back to me, he says, he says, okay, Jeff, he says, maybe take three, it'll be a little better. 
know, he was ex- <laughs> he was extremely hard on me. And I even know people, other crew people come over to me and says, what are you letting the boom operator talk to you like that? And I said, please. I said, you know, no problem. Anything that Don, because you know, first of all, Don was in a much better position to know what was going on on the set than I was. Because this is also the beginning of the time where, you know, sound carts were getting bigger and bigger. We were off the set more and more. Mm. And the boom operator really, the good ones really ran the set and really were the representative of the sound department on the set. Mm. Don always knew what the shot was because Don was having a conversation with the operator. And also, you know, Don got very good. You know, if if we were shooting with one camera and the, the operator said, yeah, I've got a 35 millimeter lens, Don knew exactly where the frame line was. Right. And, uh, you know, if he was working, if he was working in a shot that's going to have a dolly move. You know, we'd work with a dolly operator, and you know, and um, it was just it was a different different process. A lot of boom operators would not be would not be into it the way the way Don was. That you know, if there was ever anything that I was missing, Don would tell me. He says, "Let's get that one wild line." You know, when she goes through the doorway, says I was a little wider than I should have been at that point. Give him some options. And we'll call for a call for a wild track. And if I'm working with a director who already knows that I'm looking out for their back, uh, we'll say, fine, you know, assistant director, okay, sh- everyone shut up, background, go to lunch, you know, <laughs> but get the wild track right at the right time. Don't don't stand for like an AD saying, well, you know, can we get that wild track after lunch? No, we can't get the wild track after lunch. We need to treat it just like a take. And it's the best advice I've given a lot of people that if you want to get a useful wild track, do it just like a take. Get rid of whatever the offending thing was that bothered you in that take, whether it was that you didn't get a mic to somebody in time, or you did a mix that didn't work and they're not on an ISO, or you had a background problem, which you now can turn off for the wild track. You know, an editorial will thank the hell out of you. I mean, they'll just go, mm-hmm. you know, we made it all work beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tell your friends. How, how would you and Don plan for a scene? Well, the, the basic rule, uh, even certainly before we had multi-track, was um, we had to commit to one one technique. You know, maybe occasionally in a rehearsal, Don would be booming a scene and he would um, tell me, well, we're going to have to put a mic on so-and-so and so-and-so because when they come to the door, the shot's really too wide for me to get to it. You're going to have to use, you're going to have to mix the wireless in, you know, the mics on them until they come into the room and they come into the room, then they can be on, um, they can be all on me. And uh, we discuss that before we do the shot, you know, put the mics on the people and we do take one and I mix it. It's pretty good. You know, do take two. And um, again, I do it, you know, it's okay. Do it take three. And before we do take three, Don says, uh, Jeff, forget about the wireless. I've got it all. Okay. So he had worked out physically some of his moves or something, and he knew that, you know, on take three, I'm not going to need the wireless. The, the one track that we have is going to be the boom track. I'm not going to have to mix anything. All I'm going to have to do is to get the levels right. And um, sure enough, take three, it's beautiful. And it has the perspective. It doesn't have the chance of me fucking up the mix because I'm not mixing anything. Don's mixing it with the microphone. And... Uh, But when we got into multi-track, what we would have done in the same scene is we would have continued to lay down the the wireless because they're on the actors. Why not? But we would never expect that in post-production that the picture editor certainly wouldn't look for it. And the sound editor probably wouldn't look for the the ISO tracks. They would just go with the mix because the mix was perfect. My mix was perfect. What did you like? How did you kind of come to the conclusion when your mix was working? Well, what was sort of your guideposts? uh, um, in the beginning, 
I used to go to dailies all the time. And certainly uh, on the movies that I was working on with my father, I remember one time he asked me, he says, well, why are you going to dailies? You're recording sound. You've heard it all already. You don't have to suffer the way I do, you know, going to the lab in the morning and hoping that I didn't fuck it up then going to dailies and, you know, watching the image and thinking whether the pan was, was good or whether, you know, that tight shot was too tight. Or I said, Pop, I said, I'm doing sound for picture. I don't know that I've done a good job until I see my sound with the picture. And he really was sort of floored by that. And he thought, well, yeah, you heard it, but you didn't really hear it. So I would make my first judgments at dailies. And then my second judgment would come if I was lucky enough to visit the editing room and I would look at a rough assemblage of a scene and I would see that they cut all the raw tracks to picture, which is all the picture editor did. I mean, picture editors didn't used to play with the sound the way they do now. You know, I mean, they, they would a little bit. But if I could watch a rough assembly, you know, black and white work print, you know, on a chem or something and listen to the dialogue and have it make sense and not have anything jump out at being weird or peculiar, I figure I've done a really good job. And then over the years, I got to the point where I knew after a given take that I had done a, what I thought was, was a good job. And then, of course, I also had the second set of golden ears with Don that, um, that he, would, he would let me know. He said, well, he said, I think we can do a little bit better on the next take. Hmm. You have to remember, this is back in the days when we used to have many rehearsals, I mean, on most jobs, and many takes, not because we have to do another for sound or anything, but, you know, we have to do another because the operating wasn't right, or, uh, you know, an actor flubs a line, or, you know, people were paying attention to what was going on. And if I felt I needed another take uh, for something, usually there, there'd already be enough sort of mutual respect for the craft that uh, they'd say, fine, let's, uh, let's do another one. I did have one quick story about with uh, an officer and a gentleman working with Taylor Hackford. We were doing a really good job on the movie. And uh, we had a scene with Richard Gere and Deborah Winger at the jukebox. And uh, we had a truck pull up. We'd done, we'd done seven or eight takes. And on take eight, I think it was, a truck pulled up and started idling right outside TJ's bar where we were shooting uh, up in Port Townsend. And the take was just really no good. Okay. Taylor said, cut, moving on. And I had to get up from the sound ground. I said, Taylor, I said, you know, we had a real problem with the truck. He said, what? Because evidently he was really not listening carefully to the performance. He was just watching it. And I said, we have to do another one. And he said, he said, we're not going to do another one. He says, that was the take. I'll never get that performance again. I said, Taylor, if you use that take, you're going to have to get that performance again three months from now on a looping stage. It won't be as good. Let's do another one right now. And he went, oh, God. So we did take nine, no truck. That's the take that's in the movie, hmm. you know. But he, he was just, he was so stubborn because he, he saw a performance. And it's true, we might not have gotten as good a performance, but he kept saying they'll never be able to do it again. Well, you know, that was back in the days when you, you did it again, you know. I mean, it's just, hmm. um, forgot about the fact that we'd also done four or five other takes before that were also pretty damn good. But, you know. <laughs> Sorry I didn't call you this week. This whole week for me has been unbelievable. It's okay. How did survival training go? I survived. You survived, <laughs> obviously. How was your week? It was good. I'm gonna get a raise at the beginning of next month. Yeah? Yeah. That's great. You guys are graduating in a couple of weeks? Yeah. 
Besides unwanted sounds, what were you looking for in good sound? Like, how would you describe the sound when it was how you wanted it or how it was good? I always strive for something where the technique would not reveal itself at all. It was like, you don't want to call attention to what you're doing hmm. and, 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 and how you did it. And no one really even has to know how you did it. It has to feel as natural as possible so that in theory, and, I, and I'm really only, I'm not speaking about science fiction or fantasy or things where you've created sounds which have no counterpart in the real world. I'm talking about your basic real world scene, two people sitting down at a table and talking, you know, or someone yelling across to somebody across the room or somebody just having a conversation. You want it to feel like you're there with them that the camera is giving you a view of what you would see if you were there. And what you're hearing is what you would hear within the flexibility of dramatic license that, you know, if you have two people walking in the distance in the park and you hear them talking, in real life, you probably wouldn't hear them talking, you know. And, but in a movie, of course, you need to hear them talking. You know, that doesn't break my rule about natural sound, but it means that when they're both in the frame and you're fairly close to them and whatever, you want to hear them as if you were like, you were the camera sitting there listening to them talk. Another director you ended up working with many times was Cameron Crowe. How did you end up connecting with him? I was asked first to do um, Say Anything. Uh, I don't know exactly who recommended me, um, but I didn't even go in for an interview because I think I was busy doing something else. And then I got recommended to um, do uh, Singles, which uh, incidentally, Art Rochester, who was a good friend, got the job doing um, Say Anything. And I think they asked Art back for um, actually Richard Chu, who was the picture editor, who I knew not not from Richard cutting any movie that I worked on, but just I think from having sat in on uh, some editorial session and Richard and I had a good conversation about stuff and he had heard about me through my reputation mm. and he had recommended me to Cameron if Art couldn't do it. And it turned out that Art could do it. So Art did that. Uh, when Jerry Maguire came along, they tried again uh, to get me. And um, I, that, this time I could go in for, uh, for an interview and went in and had the interview with Cameron, which I found out later, interviews with Cameron always go a certain way. And we really, it was not like any other interview with any other director. He didn't talk about the movie much at all. Uh, we talked mostly about music. He was um, thrilled that we felt a real bond on a lot of music that, that he understood right away that music was as important to me in my life uh, as it is to him. And he, he, he just it was just like a real human conversation. And I think what was most important to Cameron was to have good feelings about the people he's going to be working with and to have some kind of you know, simpatico type relationship. And he, I think at the outset, he just sort of assumed that I would, you know, that I was a competent sound mixer. I mean, he heard that from other people. So he wasn't really worried about that. And I was thrilled to get the job just because, you know, I'd read the script. It was a great script. And um, I knew about Cameron from his Rolling Stone days. And, and, and I loved the fact that we had this common bond with the music. So um, got the job. And the first thing that came up is that Tom Cruise had developed this, this uh, sound system called Clear Sound, which um, Tom was never happy about his own voice. And 
being the totally self-aware person that he is, uh, developed the system which he thought would improve his voice and kind of insisted once he became a star and was producing these things that the system be used on, on the movie, this equipment, the sound equipment that he had built. And uh, I spoke to Ivan Sherrock, who did a movie with Tom where he had to use this equipment. It's totally, totally unworkable equipment, incidentally. And I wasn't looking forward to that. So I had a meeting with Tom. I was praying and hoping that Tom, based on my reputation or whatever, would be happy to have me just do what I had always done with my own equipment mm -hmm. and everything and would forget this clear sound thing. And sure enough, right out of the box in the meeting, Tom said, he said, I know you may have been concerned about clear sound and all. He says, so I, I want you just to do what you do. What you do. And I uh, said, I'm not going to not going to get in your way. We're going to have a great time. He says, he says, I love Cameron and um, you're going to love Cameron. And and uh, in fact, we did get along terrifically on the movie, Tom and I. And um, uh, when I went on to do three other movies, maybe four other movies with Tom and mm -hmm. uh, obviously several other movies with uh, with Cameron. But uh, it was a truly wonderful experience working with Cameron, because, again, second only to like Hal Ashby. He was so involved and so appreciative of the crew, the whole crew. It didn't matter whether you're like a third electrician. He knew that everyone was there to make the movie. And um, uh, he was so generous and compassionate with the actors if they were having any problem. Just had a lot of faith in, um, in everybody's abilities. He really, really treasured the uh, the involvement. Of course, I loved the fact that I was, again, working with a director that was interested in talking with me and with Don Sufal. It just made the job so much more enjoyable. And also, we could do the best work ever because it wasn't just a question of respecting the sound department. He respected the fact and the hope that with the conversation, we might end up doing things in a way that he maybe hadn't thought of that would actually make a better a better movie. But he did have this one technique, which I had to get used to very quickly, which was the use of music on the set. Now, I'd worked with other directors, notably Hal Ashby, who um, used to like to play music on the set, all right, for mood, you know, just to get things over. Well, Cameron took it many steps further in that he used musical selections as a directorial tool. Rather than going over to Kate Hudson and telling her, you're thinking about uh, William, uh, you're wondering about the songs, well, I guess songs, and you're reflecting on this, right? Rather than giving her all those directions, he would come over to me. And at that point, I was doing um, playback of music. You know, he had a whole musical library, which is actually CDs, a whole case full of CDs. He would say, Jeff, Joni Mitchell. And then we would choose something from Joni Mitchell, and he would play that. For, for Kate Hudson, rather than talking to her. Mm. Then we would start the scene, Kate would do some dialogue and all, and then right during a break, he'd start playing the Joni Mitchell again. She'd have to obviously stop talking the dialogue, and then, you know, I would kill the music, and she'd start with the dialogue again. And sometimes it would, it just felt so weird, because, and everybody else in the crew, you know, had not seen this technique. It stops everybody in their tracks, like, this music, you know, what so everyone had to get used to it, and the actors had to get used to it, because some of the actors just went, I, I can't do this. Well, what's going on? I, I, you know, am I acting? Are we going to get through this take, or are you going to play music? or what? But some of them, most of them actually, ended up embracing it, and we would never do a scene without at least playing something before we started the scene, and sometimes even during the scene. 
And I just had to technically keep track of whether we had actually recorded everything properly so that we mm -hmm. wouldn't, you know, because it would be at cross purposes if we ended up having to loop a scene later to get a performance because it was hit by music, which obviously can't be, you know, in the, because a lot of times also the music was not necessarily the music was going to end up in the movie. It was the music that he was using to elicit certain emotions in uh, the person, in the actor listening to it. So. The scene on the bus in Almost Famous where the band sings Tiny Dancer. Yeah. I, I'm curious about the process of seeing that scene and the script and and how you ended up handling it. Yeah. Well, um, the uh, first of all, the bus was a challenge altogether. Mm. I'd done some other movies with buses and motorhomes and stuff like that. So I was already prepared for that kind of difficulty. But Cameron had given the bus a lot of thought. One of the things that he did before that scene also was to, um, uh, he had Herb Alt, who was our key grip, brilliant, brilliant key grip, total filmmaker, designed a camera rig that was basically a camera jig, like a crane arm, suspended from the ceiling of the bus on rails that were concealed by the actual structure of the bus that you, you didn't even notice that they were there. Hmm. So it was like dolly track up high. So even when it was photographed, you didn't know what it was. And the camera suspended from that. So you could actually do a dolly shot. And you had, the, you had a head on the camera so you could do a positioning. You could actually do pans with the camera. And you could do like regular shooting as if you weren't in a bus, you were in a regular room, you know. Hmm. And he had planned during that to always be able to move over to each seat where each person was going to sing a little bit and then eventually everyone singing Tiny Dancer. And I was um, faced with the usual problem of having to record stuff in a moving bus with all that involves. And in fact, it wasn't moving under its own power. It was being pushed by a, a big, very noisy, not a camera car, but a, a rather large truck was pushing it so the driver didn't actually have to drive and you could actually shoot out the front if you were pushing it and you could shoot towards the back pushing from the front but there was still a fair amount of noise from from that push rig and i was relegated to have all of my equipment set up in the bathroom on the bus which was not a bathroom it was just an open room but it was the size of your little tiny bathroom with an accordion door and and all that. so i was crammed in there and there was some thought at one point of doing the scene to playback, you know, pre-recording all the, the, you know, the song was pre-recorded and, and the voices, but uh, Cameron really wanted to do it live for all the right reasons. So it was going to become a sing-along, which I had done a number of in the past, where there's always that problem of ideally you do it with earwigs so that the uh, playback track is not recorded at all. And you have all the voices clean and can be put in at whatever level you want them. But it also can be done often sort of down and dirty by playing the playback track through a speaker, but at a fairly low level and getting the voices hot. And, uh, and then when you put the, the existing track back in, it masks the low level track. And that was my preferred way of doing sing-alongs because every time I've done anything with earwigs and particularly with uh, inexperienced actors, they don't, they can't really sing like they're singing along with something because first of all, as you well know, earwigs is not a very great sound. It's not high fidelity. It's in your ear. It's basically annoying. There's few people that can perform properly to earwigs. So we decided to do it live. I'm in the bathroom. 
doing the playback off mini disc, believe it or not, just because it was a smaller piece of gear. I'd been playing around with mini disc, which wasn't a format I fell in love with, but it seemed to be appropriate for this particular application. And I was trying to work out how I could have speakers that deals with the delay problem and deals with the leakage that there was bound to be some leakage. So I ended up with an array of six small speakers up high, three along one side of the bus and three on the other side of the bus, so that each seat had really good close coverage that I could play the speaker, I could play the playback track at a really very, very low level that very little of it got into how we were miking the singing, miking the actors. And this is all going to be done with this camera that was on this crane thing, you know, moving around like this. So some of it was boomed. Some of it was a plant mic behind the seat of the people that were going to be singing. And eventually it arrives at William and, you know, at Kate Hudson and uh, Patrick for the lines in, you know, um, uh, I've, got to, I've got to go home. Uh, you are home. And at that one point, I did kill the playback. So that line was absolutely clear with no playback, just to give them a little more flexibility. And I thought the idea was to give them flexibility where they could use it, but they had to use it where it was because Kate Hudson is had just finished singing and then she stopped, closed her mouth when William started to speak, you know? So in a way they didn't need the flexibility, but that was the only time the music was killed. And the other factor was that Jason Lee can't sing, okay? He has no singing voice at all. So when it got to his part, he just mouthed it and they did put in another singer. So that's one thing that was replaced. But you don't really, he starts singing when other people are already singing. And I've opened up all of the mics. So we have everybody singing. But the scene turned out terrific and it's legendary now. And people always refer to it. And uh, it had a resurgence of interest in the song Tiny Dancer. You know, and Elton John is quoted as having said, all of a sudden, everyone wants to hear Tiny Dancer. And it was totally appropriate in terms of the story and uh, Russell being brought around by music again, you know, because mm -hmm. it starts out with him looking very glum and, and the whole thing, you know. So I'm very, very, very proud of that scene. It, it's really, a, it's a wonderful scene. Let's listen. I did another sing-along with uh, Tom Cruise um, and Jerry Maguire with uh, Free Falling, uh, which was pretty complicated. And, and Tom was a little nervous about it because Tom doesn't have much of a singing voice, but he really wanted it to go well. And we were doing it. It was a tow job. He was in the car and Cameron wanted him listening to a number of different things and starting to sing along with them, but then not singing along with them. So I had to handle all the playback off the laptop at Cameron's direction. We were in the camera car. He says, you know, play a little of 
whatever, you know, Juice Newton, play a little of whatever. And, you know, and then, okay, now he's supposed to be changing channels. And so we had to be watching a monitor and he's changing channels, go to another thing. You know, it was really elaborate. <laughs> Finally, we arrive at Tom Petty and the Hairbreakers doing Free Fallen. And uh, Tom burst into, you know, he only sings like one or two verses or not, not even a whole verse, but he does it. And it's just wonderful in the scene. And when we finished it, pulled over to the side of the road and we all got off the camera car and Tom gets out of the uh, gets out of the picture car, climbs off the trailer, gets out of the picture car, and comes over to me and gives me a big hug, and he says, "God, we nailed it!" You know, he was just he was so happy that it, uh, you know that I picked a technique that worked worked properly, and uh, he really could sing the way he wanted to sing, and you know he was just so pleased, you know, and that was That's part great. of uh, how I you know ended up doing you know a whole bunch of movies with with Tom, you know. In a self-indulgent way, I would like to read you one thing that was said by a post-production mixer yeah. after one of the films that I did. After the first mix, uh, the re-recording mixer said um, said to the director who was sitting in on the mix, obviously, who was kind enough to text me what, what this post-person said. Uh, and he said, and I'm quoting, Jeff Wexler did the most beautiful job with these tracks. Please tell him he is a miracle worker and your best friend and partner in delivering the world and personality of these characters. He is a genius. These tracks are gorgeous. That's wonderful. Did that go right to my heart? I mean, because I, I, I live for that. He didn't just say, Jeff recorded a good sound. We didn't have to loop anything. He said he contributed to the story, to the characters, to how an audience feels about what they're sitting there for an hour and a half or two hours or more. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just so grateful that it was, it was Cameron Crowe that texted that to me. And um, he knew how it would affect me because he knew that that really summed up our relationship. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, I, I read it to Don because it's every, very much his is talking about Don as, as well as talking about me. Both Hal Ashby and Cameron Crowe really seem to involve you in the production, both not just in filming, but in prep. That's been... That's been the case with a lot of the movies that I've worked on. I think just because there was this hope or understanding from the, some of the directors that I worked with that I was going to be able to bring something more to the table than just recording the sound. And hmm. I think because I really felt a responsibility that was a little bit more than the responsibility that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of my sound mixing friends um never really developed. Um, and I can understand why they didn't, because they worked with directors that, that didn't give a shit. You know, they would just mm. rather not, they'd rather have a sound mixer that doesn't have a conversation with them about anything. Just record whatever you can, get me the best sound you can, and um, 
you know, and then we'll have you on the next job and you'll get paid and don't worry about anything else. Well, I, I, I couldn't be that kind of person, even though I'm just the sound mixer. And, you know, I hope that doesn't sound like I'm blowing my own horn too much, but I think it is partially the reason for my success and partially the reason for the repeat business. Yeah. The directors just felt comfortable. Um, they would have me back because they just really appreciated um, the fact that that I could come to them with with discussions about intelligibility or or authenticity of a performance mm-hmm. rather than just going to them and saying, sound wasn't any good. And, uh, you know, other directors, you might, you know, hold up your hand and say, well, I, I need another one because, you know, we had an airplane or I need another one. And the director would then yell out at the talent, you know, sound mixer says you got to talk louder. Well, you know, that isn't what I, what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say was this particular performance, you know, I think we really need to do another one because it's not believe, you know, and so they would end up appreciating that because not, not to go so far as to say I'm co-directing, but it was another set of ears that was really tuned into a performance. I want to get into some of the technical side. Have you always used the same microphones throughout your career? In the beginning of my career, or quite a lot of my career, I used pretty much the same things that everybody else used, which were Sennheiser microphones, 415, 815. Mm-hmm. You know, the general rule sort of was use 815 outside, 415 inside. Um, they're very directional microphones, and they give you what used to be referred to as, as movie sound, which tends to be a little honky and a little not natural, but it was what mm-hmm. people did. The Sheps microphone was a much more gentle hypercardioid, which recorded sound much more naturally, but it was a microphone that was generally only used in the music world. But I'm personally, along with a very small handful of other sound mixers, decided um, through real-world experiments that it would be a really, really interesting microphone to use for production sound to picture for a whole variety of reasons. We actually discovered this on being there. That's when we started using it uh, extensively. But it allowed us to do things like a plant mic, a chef's plant mic, that has a really nice, seamless transition, if you do it right, mm-hmm. to an overhead Sheps uh, when the shot got tight enough to uh, to allow that. So we we did that a lot, but all of it was designed to um, to avoid having to put mics on them. So, but there were times when we would do do a wide shot with uh, with the mics on them, and it would be just the wide shot, and we would play it like these, and then we would move in to closer shot. We'd stop using the wireless and start booming it, and we were pretty good at making the match because if they weren't shooting with multiple cameras, um, we also knew that the editor could do what was standard practice in uh, in the old days is if you're in a really wide shot and you boomed it and the sound was really too wide or you put mics on them and the sound really wasn't very good, the editor could take the sound from the next coverage, the tighter shot, cheat it into the wide shot for the brief moments that you're in the wide shot because you can't really see the lip sync. And it makes the editorial cut very smooth because you're going from that wide shot where you hear them. And in the mix, you might widen it out a little bit. You're cutting to a closer shot, which is boomed and sounds good. And you're off and running. Mm-hmm. Um, when you shoot with multiple cameras, you can't do that. If you're doing your wide shot at the same time, you're doing your tight shots, you're obligated to put the mic on, um, on the actor and go with no perspective. The perspective is a microphone on the actor. 
And uh, that's the way it's done. Yeah. In the beginning of your career, you were using a Nagra recorder. Absolutely. But you were also an early adopter of both DAT recorders and file-based recorders. What can you tell me about that transition? In the beginning, the um, choice of recorder was not um, anything anybody had to think about. If you were doing a sound for picture, you had a Nagra. You know, either depending on how far back you go, it was either a Nagra 3 or a Nagra 4 or a 4L or the 4.2 or a 4S or a 4STC. Certain rare occasions, like for a concert movie where you might be doing multi-track recording directly to um, Pro Tools or to a multi-track, basically sound for picture, you're using a Nagra. So as long as you learn that recorder, you had a lot of time to think about everything else, choice of microphones, mm-hmm. you know, all those sorts of things. But then the DAT format showed up, okay? And the DAT format ended up making serious inroads in the music world as a terrific digital two-track, sort of like an, an exchange medium, you know, so that when you had mastered something on the 24-track machine, you could do a nice mix down to two tracks, easily portable, played back on DAT machines, but preserving, you know, the digital sound quality and there was no degradation in the transfer and you could make multiple, multiple DAT cassettes and all this. And I got excited about the idea of recording digital audio for picture, mostly because The standard procedure of recording on quarter-inch tape, which was then transferred to mag film, which was then transferred from the mag film, usually to um, a file-based picture editing system, you know, in Telecine, and then Mm -hmm. transferred out of that to um, a file-based system in post-production for sound editorial. They were already very used to uh, dealing with files. I felt like if we start out with a digital recording, uh, it might help on some of those transfer phases. And also there would be no print through. Print through is a problem with all analog systems. And, uh, you know, if you don't know what print through is, I could explain it. But and, uh, and I thought it would be exciting to see what these DAT machines could do. So at that time, you really couldn't get, um, you know, DAT machines were all kind of black market. It was during the period of time when there was still a residual uh, of the Betamax lawsuits going on. Betamax lawsuits, something that were brought to uh, brought to bear, trying to prevent people from recording anything digitally, primarily video, because uh, studios, major studios, were worried that people would make digital copies of, of VHS movies and various other things. You know, so they were trying to outlaw digital recording. DAT machines fell under that, and so you couldn't really buy a DAT machine. First DAT machine that I bought was a Sony D10, which I had to buy from a little place called the DAT store in LA that brought in stuff from Japan. The owner's manuals were all in Japanese. And um, I decided I'll try it on a movie and see what happens. And this was also, I was a co-founder of North Star Media Sound Services. That was a post-production facility that was doing sound transfers. We were doing the quarter-inch to mag transfers for editorial. On movies that I was working on, on commercials, we had actually a very good business going. So I knew that we had the transfer business on the movie I was going to do. And so I wasn't going to make any given production a guinea pig for the stat format. I ran in parallel the Nagra, as usual, and the DAT cassette. But we made all the transfers off the DAT cassette. So editorial still got mag film as expected. They didn't even know what we were doing. Uh, it was not a problem. I was actually very pleased with the results um, and continued to run 
Nagar and Dat Machine in parallel. So I was running two separate systems uh, mm-hmm. on several movies. And then a movie came up for 20th Century Fox where we were not allowed to do the transfers. Fox said, we're going to do the transfers. And I said, well, you should know that I'm recording to Dat. And the people in post-production and the transfer facility said, well, what's Dat? And I said, well, that's a, a digital format, two-track format, cassette. Um, oh, no, we, 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 don't, we don't do that. We don't even have you know, a DAT machine. And I said, well, actually, if you go over to your music department, you'll find that you have 10 Panasonic 3900s, which are DAT machines, because it had already been embraced by the music department hmm. at the studio. So see if you can borrow one of those machines. And to make the transfers, all you have to do is pop my cassette in, which I'll deliver to you daily, and play it out in real time to MAG, just as if you were playing it out from the Nagra. And they said, oh, well, I think we're going to have to charge the company a little bit more money to do that. I said, you're not going to have to charge the company more money. I don't want you to get in the way of me using that. Uh, If anything, you're going to really love the process. It's going to go much quicker. It's going to be a really good transfer. So they went ahead and agreed to it. Two weeks into it, uh, I talked to them in post and they said, we love it. We popped the cassette in there. They said they have these index points that we can jump right ahead to the printed takes. You know, so it's really great. But we'd love to know, you know, it has these index points. Could you label those like with scene and take? You know, so I'm thinking, well, they want me to reinvent the DAT format. Well, the DAT format didn't support metadata, but they were already thinking about the value of metadata and thinking it would speed up their job. They're charging the same amount of money as to transfer from quarter inch to mag as they are, but they're getting it done so much quicker and easier and all. And did they thank me for using DAT? No, but I introduced them to DAT. You know, I have to tell you that years and years later, I made the transition to file-based recording with the original Zaxcom Diva. And one of the first movies I had to do with the, uh, with the Diva was a movie for 20th Century Fox. So I went in in pre-production. I'd already proven, I think I'd done, I think I'd done some other movies. I'd already proven that the Diva works and Northstar was able to do the transfers. But I got on a movie, which, again, Fox was going to do the transfers. And I went in and um, talked to the people in post. And I said, I'm going to be doing a new thing. It's, it's file-based. And they said, whoa, hang on a second. We really would prefer it if you just do it the way we've always done it. Give us the DAT cassette. And I said, you're talking to the wrong person. I said, if you remember <laughs> 10 years ago uh, or whatever it was, I was in this very same office telling you that I'm using DAT. And you said, no, 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 no. You know, I said, this is the way we're going to do it, you know, and I explained to them how to do the transfers. And, you know, it was very funny. But um, I was very pleased to be a pioneer to file-based recording because it, um, I knew it's the way we were going to be doing our work. I mean, it made all the sense in the world that now everyone will be working on the same sound file. Picture editor would have the same sound file as the sound editor would have, as I generated in post. And now everyone just takes it for granted. You know, that uh, that's the way things are done. And, and there's a whole lot of production sound mixers that never, never even used a DAT machine or, or, you know, God forbid, an Agra or anything. And they don't even know how that was even possible. You know, the beauty of the beauty of multitrack is I, I continued working both Don and I continued working the same as we always did, which was the mix is king. Mm-hmm. In other words, I needed to get a mix which works with the picture. And hopefully the picture is not three cameras that are randomly shooting whatever they want. But I was able to break out all the elements that went into that mix to ISO tracks so that somebody else later 
can possibly do a better mix than I did or can accommodate the fact that my mix was not really the most appropriate for the C camera that happened to be shooting a close-up of so-and-so. And, -so. and um, even though that person may have been in the mix, uh, was fine for the A camera because they were a little bit distant and a little bit different because they were being picked up on the boom. You know, you weren't locked into whatever my mix choice was. And that was very much freed me up, but it didn't remove the responsibility of making a good mix. Because if I can't make a good mix, someone down the road, even if they have all the ices and all, may have trouble making a good mix also. We still had to do the same sorts of accommodations to make sure that we were actually covering a scene properly. So I didn't really change my technique. I was just given the um, sort of the security to know that if I screwed it up, which of course, you know, I'm only human, I could screw it up. Or not that I would screw it up. We were shooting in a manner in which there was no way I could get a credible mix for three cameras because that's three separate points of view. What am I mixing for? Am I mixing for the A camera that sees everything? Am I mixing for the C camera that happens to only be so-and-so's close-up? At those times, you'd end up having to give them what a lot of people in post-production and even in production now just basically refer to as the mix as if it doesn't really matter. Uh, the mix matters still to give the director on the day and script supervisor and everyone else that's you know important in doing the scene a sense of what the scene would be like. But um, once multi-track became um, easy and everybody's recorder was a multi-track recorder, which file-based enabled, made, made possible, it enabled extensive use of mics on the actors because it freed you from having to get a credible mix with six or seven or eight or nine wireless out there and could leave all of that to someone later uh, with the ISOs to put it up and treat it like rock and roll to treat it like, you know, like in the music world, it used to be a two-part process. There was tracking and mixing mm -hmm. and tracking. Well, well, you know, in the music world, you know, they would, you know, have a whole orchestra or, you know, a rock band or whatever. And you had nine mics on the drums and, and you would do all the tracking. Once all the tracking was done, you'd go back and you start mixing and you do a whole mix just on the drum kit. Okay. We had nine mics on there. I really... During this number, I really think we need more snare, you know, bring up the snare, you know. Well, that sort of approach began to become the standard procedure for post-production sound editorial to go to all the ISOs and start the mix to the point that I've, you know, I had people ask questions on JW Sound, some younger sound mixers. Do you still try and get a, get a good mix or you just leave it all off on the ISOs? Well, I was horrified by the question. But it is a reality that we were hearing from Post that uh, a lot of times they just ignore the mix because they know it's not likely to be very good. And in fact, a lot of times it wasn't very good, um, not on my jobs. Uh, so they really, they had to go to the ISOs and they would start mixing the movie for the first time actually in Post, you know, usually the sound editor. And uh, it enabled a style of working that uh, I'm not crazy about. I think the overall soundtrack even though we movies today have like better sound than they've ever had before, they've also lost something which was very important to me, which would be perspective. And it's gotten it's gotten too easy to get something on the soundtrack without being able to actually finesse stuff so that you're really helping an audience get to know a character. You know, it's just it's the craft part of 
sound mixing that I think, you know, production sound mixing that I that I miss. Um, I was on a panel discussion talking about intelligibility, particularly on TV mm-hmm. shows. I brought up something that nobody else had thought about. There's a typical scene in a lot of TV shows where they have a certain amount of dialogue that has to be said in a certain period of time, and they've decided, camera or the director has decided, I want this to happen when they come out of the door up here, and they go down the stairs, and they go through the hallway, and they go into this other room, and then they sit down, okay? Mm-hmm. And so the actors are going, God, i got to say all these words, and then it turns out that the content or what they're saying is a conversation they would never have going down the stairs and into that office or like that. But because the actors are told that's what you have to do, they do it. So it's not, intelligibility is not just sound quality. It's whether it's coherent. It's whether it makes sense. And if you think about what they were saying content-wise, they would have really sat down at that table right away and had a quiet conversation with each other. They wouldn't have been going up and down the stairs and through a hallway, but visually they're afraid the scene is going to die if we just sit Mm. there and listen to the actors talk. And in some cases, they're right because the dialogue is stupid because the writers weren't given enough time or they're writing on formula. And Mm -hmm. this is a scene where they have to talk about yada, 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 yada. So, and we've got to shoot it and we've got to shoot it in 23 seconds. So, you know, all those things are impinged on it and it ends up possibly getting blamed on the soundtrack. But the sad part is the audience just accepts it. And then they either love the show or they don't love the show. And they just forget about the fact that, well, maybe I didn't hear everything they said, but it doesn't matter. I love the way she looks or that was a great shot or, you know, it was so wonderful to see that car get blown up, um, you know, or whatever else it is that they like about the show. But, you know, from my standpoint, the dialogue generally is telling the story. You know, even though it's a visual Mm -hmm. medium, obviously, if people are not getting the dialogue, or they're getting it, but they're not, it's not really authentic. You don't really believe the characters wanted to say those things. You know, it, it, it affects me. I, I may be being overly critical and overly, I don't know what you want to say, snobbish, but um, it's just because I, I, I really, I, w- I was committed to the craft of movie making. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that a lot of the movies that I did show that. And uh, so I may not have done as many movies as I could have done in my career, but, you know, so many of the ones that I did do, I'm extremely proud of. And I feel like my contribution was significant and beyond just good sound. Your site, JW Sound Group, has become a massive worldwide resource for sound professionals. And, and from my own personal side, I remember a friend introduced me to Ramps, a precursor to your online forum site in early 2000s. But oh, yes. soon after, we were all on JW Sound. and. So I'm curious, how did, how did the site's creation come to be, and, and what has that meant for you? I was a big participant in RAMPS, you know, recording arts, motion picture, sound. I really, I, I loved the community, and I loved participating in it. And when things started to go bad, we had a couple of troublemakers and a couple of people that just made it untenable. And um, it also was the Usenet newsgroup format didn't really lend itself to um, anything more than just text. You know, it was not easy or even possible to put up images or video or links to other things. And uh, what I figured, I will start a forum discussion group that will be like ramps, and that'll give people a place to go that's a little bit more civilized, doesn't have the troublemakers because we won't let them in, and we'll see how it goes. 
and formed actually JW Sound as it is today and invited everybody from Ramps over there. And the migration was uh, was really, really quick. People jumped on the opportunity and it was just a nicer place and it was more supportive of putting up links to video and uh, having conversations. And again, it required a little bit more discipline. So people uh, were a little bit more thoughtful. And uh, it turned out that uh, we were having signups, you know, aside from bringing over almost all the people that were on ramps, we were getting signups, you know, every every couple of days or someone would find out about it. And last time I checked, we have um, 37,000 signups uh, to JW Sound. And certainly we don't have all those people participating by any means, but we ended up with a core of really, really good veteran people who were perfectly willing to share their, their experiences and be helpful and um, sometimes not quite as timely as some of the newbies wanted, like an immediate answer because they were on the set trying to figure out how to operate the recorder they had just bought and weren't able to have time to even read the manual. You know, JW Sound did not serve those people so well. Well, we, we, it was not designed to handhold someone who, you know, is just, just starting out and literally has no idea what they're doing. Although we do feel those sorts of questions. And there are a number of people who are either a little bit more um, compassionate than I am at this point uh, and give people some good answers or also give them some direction that, you know, maybe you should try and spend some time on the set with some other people to see how things are done and, uh, and that sort of advice. And it's even within this world of social media now that has completely taken over um, everything, uh, you know, the site is still relevant and it's still doing, uh, still doing well. And and I'm always gratified that if, that if you even just do a Google search, like on a microphone, usually the second or third hit uh, on a Google search is some entry on JW Sound, where someone talking about, well, I just got the, you know, the Sankin CS1 and uh, whatever, and you get a whole write-up. And then I've looked back at some of the things that I wrote, and it's it's interesting stuff, you know? It's really, uh, and, and I, I, I've been to various events where people come up to me and they start talking about something, and uh, uh, and they said, "Yeah." And I was reading on on JW Sound that uh, something so like that, and and all of a sudden it dawns on them that they're they're talking to Jeff Wexler. They're talking to JW Sound. <laughs> they didn't even realize they were just <laughs> talking to me. That they knew I was like you know production sound mixer, and they were having the conversation. But it, it only dawned on them later that I am the JW and JW Sound. Um, and they always get a big kick out of that, and you know, and I get people say that it was a tremendous resource for them. And that's the, one of the things that it has over a lot of the other social media things is it is a searchable, even though the search is not perfect, you can go back and um, and search previous conversations and sometimes find out that one little kernel of uh, wisdom or information that you were looking for. CAS has historically been focused primarily on the mixers, both production and post. But I'm guessing with your history and relationship with Don Sufold, you feel pretty strongly about the contribution of boom operators and, a- and the whole production sound. Absolutely. So team. important. It's not just a stepping stone. It's not just like a low-level uh, position. Uh, you are right. absolutely an integral part of creating the soundtrack for a project. The fact that the sound mix is referred to as the department head, you know, is for clerical purposes only. I mean, it it, it says nothing about your job and what you have to do. Um, and there there are few people who, in in my knowledge, that have committed themselves to being boom operator only. Um, and this mm-hmm. has happened because they've worked with production sound mixers such as myself, 
who have really valued and understood how important the boom operator is. That you know they've done very little grandstanding of their own. I'm the production sound mixer. I'm the department head. I mean, I used to go out of my way to convince a director or producer or whatever that when they had a problem or when they wanted to know how to solve something or how to deal with something, feel totally free to talk to Don. You know, you don't have to come mm. back to the sound cart and talk to me. You know, you literally, you will get as good an answer as anyone can ever give by talking to Don. Well, but, but he's, he's the boom operator, you know, and they're sort of assuming, well, you know, I got a guy that's got strong arms, you know, and is willing to put up with all the shit. And you know, this is a different deal, you know. People learned very early on that um, it was a team like no other. I mean, and I relied on it to the point that I very humbly have to admit that I would never have accomplished what I accomplished without him. And mm. uh, and I don't think that's I don't think that's slighting myself. I think that's just a recognition of the craft itself. That's what I would like to take away for people to understand about the relationship. Well said. Thank you so much. All right. We did it. We did. Thanks again to Jeff Wexler, CAS, for taking the time to share his stories. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.